Hello, and welcome to another episode of Mandatory Redistribution Party. Today's episode spans all the topics that were considered too dangerous for school. Belly buttons, the Peasants' Revolt of 1381, and the philosophical idea that it is morally wrong to have children. And if those topics aren't to your liking, then I don't know what to suggest. Um, Skip this ep, I guess. Um, Better look next time. Um... I don't know what to tell you. This is the end of the introduction, so the episode's going to begin now. I'm sorry. Well, there's that Churchill thing of being like, if you have enemies, then that means you've stood up for something in your life. But as I read that, and I'm like, no, that's, you sound like a prick. Like, <laughs> if you start saying that enemies is like a necessary part of being virtuous, you're like, no, you, enemies is also a necessary part of being an absolute anus. Yeah. But... Anus is good. Anus is all right, but even then I'm like, I'm stigmatizing part of the anatomy. See, that's... For a lot of people, anus is actually a primary part of their uh, a sexual pleasure. Yeah, and yeah, for me yeah. going, anus is just this poo area. I'm like... I, I, I regard the anus as multifunction, and I, I still find it entertaining to be... I mean, as a heterosexual man who's like yeah. scared of... I'm scared of things going in my belly button. That's where my level of I... sphincter fear... <laughs> is that the belly button that freaks me the fuck out yeah 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 uh, but, but i keep thinking because the belly button seems to me like you know when you tie up a balloon yeah and it looks a bit like that the contorted bits of skin on uh <laughs> where your belly button is and i also we all know that that's like if that wasn't there if that something would happen to this knot oh, that yeah, balloon's well. fucked and everything inside the balloon's coming out Yep. So obviously, if you understand where this analogy is going, uh-huh. I really feel like if something were to happen to this knot here, yes. which is precarious, the last thing that's like nibbed up and tied off as I was born, yeah, then everything inside me just spools out like uh, the thing. Yeah, well, I think of it like um, like the Death Star. Um, oh, at the end of Star Wars One. Well, yeah, the end of where they like yes, yeah, so it's like hench and like it's powerful and it's but it has this one weak spot. And this is me we're talking about as well. Yeah, yeah. And it's going, yeah, but there's this one thing which, like, it hides. <laughs> <laughs> but if you were to, like, go right in there, the whole thing comes down. And what, even thinking about my own belly button now, that's how I think about it. And when you... Do you get it when you... Do you get it? Like, is the inside of your belly button incredibly sensitive? Yes, but yeah. I don't know if it's psychological. It's there for your brain to be like, this is a dangerous yeah. area. If you mess around here, that's it. <laughs> I think my belly button's more sensitive than my anus. Yeah, no, yeah, mine too. That's yeah. what I was saying. No, totally. Yeah, and, and almost everything else with that level of sensitivity has been involved in sex play. Mm-hmm. But I know of no sexual practices that involve the belly button because, and I genuinely believe this, we all viscerally know 
that it is the it's just more dangerous than it's worth it. <laughs> it's more dangerous than those politicians who like wank while hanging themselves. <laughs> that is a lower risk thing than going in the belly button. Imagine if someone's found in a hotel, but instead of the classic autoerotic asphyxiation, it's like he's been belly buttoned. He got belly buttoned. If someone were to start, I mean, in in this 4chan Reddit world where everything you can think of Mm -hmm. is beyond the pale, Mm -hmm. has not only been done, Mm. but we're all intimately aware of it thanks to social media. Yeah, so where there's no... Why have I heard of no belly button play? Yeah. It's because it's actually, it's right into our reptile spinal column part of our brain. Mm. No. Yeah. We can't do it. Do you think it's it's like totally cross-cultural as well? So like... Even in uh, you know, tribal societies or the Soviet Union in the 1950s, people were like, you stay the fuck away from my belly button. Like, once they're getting near it, you just start panicking. Do you think it's ever been used as like xenophobic propaganda of saying, did you know that over there, they're always in their belly button? Yeah, yeah. fishing about. And yet even that doesn't cross the line into belly button play. And it's nice to know, and it's it's hard to know in a world where people can't even agree on a a universal set of human rights. What universals are there across all peoples? We seem so different from one another in beliefs, ideology, and lifestyle. It's great to know there is at least one unifying thing: the belly button. Do not touch. <laughs> Don't touch it. Like you know, um, I keep seeing interviews with musicians. Because I click on interviews with musicians. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's and that's how you'll end up seeing them. Yeah, it's a big mistake. Yeah, and they always talk because they want to sell to all, you know, they want to sell to all right and left wing political figures. Oh, so yeah, they avoid yeah. public question. And the stock answer is like, well, the thing I really love about music is people have all these different beliefs, but in the moment. This unifies us. Yeah, everyone's yeah. singing Eleanor Rigby back at me or, mm. I don't know, a Foo Fighters song. Right, there's everyone's uh, singing Smash Mouth back at me. <laughs> I say Smash Mouth actually has been a big unifier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like the, the, the it's the horseshoe theory of online irony. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, and I sincerity being mistaken for not, for irony, which is yeah. A, yeah. I mean, the first two lines of that is about having a charismatic figure that tells you the world is fundamentally dangerous. <laughs> 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 oh my god! Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The great leader told me that there is an existential threat, but that I myself within me, I'm an all-star. Me and other people like me, we're going to get up. We're going to assume control. Good Lord. <laughs> yeah. That's why centrists don't like it. My God. It, it, does, it doesn't want to change the status. If you don't want to change the status quo... Smash Mouth is actually quite quite threatening. It's disturbing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Subversive music. Um, <laughs> contraband. Smash Mouth will be contraband. Or prop. Yeah, when Blair is our king once more. But the belly button, even centrists. You go for even a centrist belly, belly button. button. No, 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 no. You get you you go. Centrists don't have belly button. Yeah. You go towards Tom Watson's belly button with a feather. Oh no, it's just smooth. Yeah, it's, they fully, don't it's fully smooth. Yeah, so they, it's not that they, they the centrists <laughs> haven't surpassed but the belly button fear. They're just the Ken doll of belly, belly well, buttons. Well, then because because they don't want to throw their lot in with the innies or the outies, so they actually take the middle <laughs> path, which is that it Very just good. it just goes right across. <laughs> it is a belly button, but it just stays. It's neither in nor out. Oh my god. <laughs>
Have you ever considered who you would be in Game of Thrones? I'd be a Stark because I'm from the North and I met Sean Bean once in a chippy. I'd be a Lannister because I've got a great credit score and complicated relationships with my siblings. I bring the sad news that statistically you'd be a peasant. I'd be a peasant. We'd all be peasants. We wouldn't even get screen time other than as an establishing shot of our muddy face gawping up at a horse-mounted landowner or perhaps as one chunk of a mass grave that exists to make a silk-clad lady sad. Game of Thrones takes so much from real medieval European history that most academics now refer to the medieval period as Game of Thrones times. Game of Thrones' focus on the rich and powerful is a reflection of the history of the real Game of Thrones times. They might be called Lancaster instead of Lannister, but they're the same bad lads. So what about the ordinary people? The Normos? What about the people who kept the Lannisters and the Lancasters fed? Let's talk about peasants. Peasants had it rough. If you're a peasant, you're working from dawn to dusk and it is back-breaking manual labour. You live in a one-room hut full of smoke from the fire and the flatulence of slumbering swine. You wear an itchy tunic and even if you could afford something better, you couldn't wear it. Uh, not because of fashion, but because it was illegal. Yeah, there were these things called sumptuary laws that made it illegal to wear clothes above your social station, above your class. If you were a peasant, it was literally a crime to use anything other than rope for a belt. It wasn't all misery though. Yeah, twice a year, you might see a cockerel peck another cockerel to death, which was the Game of Thrones of Game of Thrones times. You'll probably get married at 12 to a spouse chosen by the local landowner. Yeah, but don't worry, it won't last forever. Uh, you'll probably die before 32. Well, surely they'd kick off. Surely all these peasants would kick off if their lives were so bad. Alas, friend, they did not kick off. There were no big popular rebellions before the 1300s in Europe. Then, in the mid-14th century, they did kick off, which is why I want to talk about the Peasants' Revolt of 1381, also called Wat Tyler's Rebellion, the first popular rebellion in English history. I say English history because the Welsh aren't exactly happy with being England's first colony, but that's... we ain't got time for that here. 14th century England was rough. You got... Famine. You got... Yeah. You got high taxation. And you even got a big dollop of plague. There's even climate change. In the uh, 13th century, England was hot. Uh, they had vineyards, uh, but the climate got about one degree cooler. Uh, doesn't seem like much, but it made a difference. You got more rain, more failed crops. You got diseases wiping out half the animals. People eating the diseased animals to survive. What? I didn't know they had KFC in Game of Thrones times is a joke I typed out and have now read. You also had a long-term population boom, which altogether pushed rent and prices up. This meant the gaping abyss between rich people and poor people got wider. The poor starved to death, and when they died, the rich took their stuff. They took the land they worked and lived on. What's that you say? Overpopulation driving down wages? Overpopulation driving up? prices. Uh-oh, here he is. It's Eugene the Eugenicist. 
Eugene, I, I think you'll find the decisions of the landowning class and the structure of society were the main source. Now, defo overpopulation, you know what would sort that out. A nice bit of plague. Well, you'll be pleased to know that that's what happened. On top of climate change, high taxation to fund wars and starvation, you got the Black Death. The Black Death did reduce the population. Peasants tried to reduce rents and keep more of what they farmed. The landowners tried to pass laws to make them take their pre-plague wages and lock them up if they didn't accept them. In 1351, Parliament passed the Statute of Labourers, which set a maximum wage for peasants, established punishment if they refused to work for that wage. Even though the Black Death had increased the demand for workers and made more land available, the poor stay poor. Almost as if social relations have something to do with it, I don't know. Landowners, the feudal ruling class, controlled everything. They enclosed land and water, they even decided who could collect wood and where. People ignored these rules though. One night in 1356, the Duke of Arundel lost more than 100 swans from his castle ponds. Meanwhile, England was at war with France and they were getting owned. This helped cause the peasants revolt because the war was super expensive and the state tried to get the money by taxing the peasants who didn't have any money, so they refused to pay it. The peasants revolt starts when John Bampton an MP, tried to crack down on people not paying the tax in Essex. John Bampton's henchmen tried to arrest people for refusing to pay the tax, but the people chased away Bampton's goons. This successful goon deterrence encouraged other peasants, up to 50,000 of them, to march to London. There were also risings in the Wirral against the Abbot of Chester, that asshole. Down in Kent, a guy called Robert Belling was claimed as a serf by a lord who arrested him and threw him in a castle dungeon. This caused more peasants to kick off, and a big group of them marched on Maidstone. They murdered a rich merchant. At Rochester Castle, a dude called What Tyler pops up. He's sometimes referred to as the leader of the revolt, even though it began without him. We don't know much about Watt Tyler, but we do know that he was seen as the rebel's leader. The peasants, including Tyler, marched on Canterbury Cathedral during Mass. They demanded the monks elect a new archbishop to replace Archbishop Shudbury who was also the king's chancellor and the guy behind the poll taxes the peasants were fuming about. Peasants didn't just want Sudbury to resign, they wanted him to be beheaded. The Essex rebels were led by a man called Jack Straw, who sadly shares his name with the new label War Criminal. This may also have been what Tyler too, and they've kind of just mixed him up. The rebels executed people with close connections to the royal court, like Thomas Orgrave, the treasurer, and John of Gaunt, the king's uncle. I've got an Uncle John. Uh, he rides bikes and eats an entire loaf of white bread with every meal. They also found the tax records and burnt them. Numerous other members of the ruling class had their homes ransacked, livestock stolen. They then freed rebel preacher John Ball from prison. John Ball is the beating ideological heart of the Peasants' Revolt. One of John Ball's popular phrases, which was common at the time but his emphasis was radical, was When Adam delved and Eve span, who was then the gentleman? What he's saying is that people, as created by God, were not oppressed by class distinctions. Class distinction is a human creation, not a godly one. The feudal order was ungodly. A ruling class was unnatural. These are very dangerous ideas. King Richard, who's 14 years old at the time, eventually realised he'd have to meet with the rebels, and he met them on a barge. Well, he's on the barge there on a riverbank. And the rebels gave him a list of people to execute as traitors. 
I, I, I'm saying the Peasants' Revolt's radical, but they still think the king's going to help them, and they kind of see the king as on their side, and the king has kind of been betrayed, and their language is very much about traitors to the nation. So Anyway, Richard mugs off the Peasants, stalls, tries to build up, force to repress him. But the rebels keep getting closer. They eventually get to Southwark, which is written Southwark, uh, where they absolutely kick off. They went for both property and people, targeting buildings associated with the architects of the poll tax. People like John of Gaunt and Archbishop Shibri. They broke into the prison and released all those in prison for debt and attacked lawyers. They didn't take the property. They destroyed it. So they're looting, but they poured the wine away and burnt the clothes. Seems a waste, but they're in full rage mode. mode. The rebels also got into the Savoy Palace, considered the most deluxe and pimped out townhouse in London. The place had an orchard, and Savoy Palace belonged to John of Gaunt. He wasn't there, which is pretty lucky for him, as they'd have defo killed him. Uh, But they trash it and then torch everything. Expensive gold and silver objects are smashed with axes and chucked into the sewers. Grind up jewels, which seems like effort. They even took some of his clothes and then put them on a lance for target practice. Some peasants did try to loot and take stuff for themselves, but the other rebels killed them. Guess it was regarded as this weird kind of scabbing. For some bonus slapstick, bonus slapstick, some of the peasants mistook barrels of gunpowder for something else, uh, set them on fire, accidentally killing themselves in a fiery explosion. Relatable. Then the peasants head towards Westminster, trashing more houses and killing any authorities they come across. Meanwhile, King Richard and Archbishop Shudbury hid in the Tower of London. Richard left the tower to meet the rebels. Uh, they weren't like regicidal. They didn't want to kill him. They blamed others, right? Remember, this is their first go at revolution. Yes, at revolt, close, but no potato. So the peasants' demands to the king were to end serfdom, amnesty for those in the rebellion, and hand over the people behind the tax so they could you know, behead them or whatever. And the king accepted these demands. Once their demands were accepted, most of the rebels went home. Job done, right? The king's made a promise. Why would he lie? But the ones from Kent, led by Wat Tyler, stayed and broke into the tower. There's a really good source from some guy called Thomas Walsingham, which describes the peasants going about the king's chamber with their, quote, They lay their sordid hands on the beards of several most noble knights. <laughs> uh, then they beheaded some more rich people, including Archbishop Sudbury, uh, who the knights did nothing to protect because uh, even they thought he was a dick. They stuck the severed heads on poles along London Bridge, which must have been pretty gruesome. King Richard met the rebels again at St. Bartholomew's Priory. Tyler's men on one side, the King's men on the other. Uh, The rebels' demands had gone up a notch. They wanted local self-government, regional autonomy, the abolition of lordship, division of property between all, including church lands. King then promises that he'd give them all he could grant fairly whatever that means um, what tyler then asked for some water because he was hot and then someone gave it him and then he swilled it round at his mouth in a super disgusting way spat it out and then asked for a jug of ale which he downed in one what tyler has powerful peasant lad energy the people on the king's side found Watt Tyler's disgusting hydration techniques super intimidating, probably because at the time he was tossing a dagger from hand to hand. When Tyler was about to leave, one of the king's men piped up, called Tyler the greatest thief and robber in Kent. To me, that sounds pretty badass, uh, but it was an insult. Uh, 
suddenly a fight broke out. In the brawl, Tyler got stabbed with a sword, but then managed to get back to his supporters who patched him up, only for him to be later recaptured and beheaded. But the rebellion continued, headless. The uprisings were eventually crushed. Soldiers flooded into Kent and Suffolk. Uh, by the end of the month, King Richard reversed all his promises of reform. And he personally oversaw trials of rebels. Ringleaders were hanged, drawn and quartered, with pieces of their bodies taken to different parts of the country as a warning. The message clear. Rise up again, and this will happen to you. So, it seems like the peasants' revolt was a failure. But the rebellion did frighten the landowning class, uh, what with lots of them getting killed and their fancy houses getting trashed, and made them realise they couldn't push the poor too far. Also, no government collected a poll tax again until Thatcher tried in 1990, which, if you want to look that up, did not go well for her. Some of the figures of the revolt became popular heroes after their death, like Watt Tyler and Jack Straw, who featured in stories and poems. And over the next 50 years, the peasants' lives did improve. I mean, they're still peasants, but they could work for more money and slowly gained more freedoms from their lords. You know, like who to marry, for example. Maybe a slightly fancier rope belt. So what can we learn from the peasants' revolt? Well, I don't really know. I do think it's important to remember and emphasise the collective power and potential of the workers as a historical force. At a push, if I had to take something away from revolt, maybe if you're going to kick off, if you you know dare try your hand at the Game of Thrones, it is probably unwise to trust the King of England, especially after you've beheaded loads of his mates. Have you heard of antinatalism? Nate. I know natal mm-hmm. Ch- childbirth. So antinatalism is, I wouldn't say it's entered the news again, but most people now will associate with a guy called David Bentar, mm. who um, he's a philosopher and he has tried to make sort of an acceptable and formalised and published face of antinatalism. And I don't think he's representation of it is like the clearest or best way in but he is like the figurehead of it what's his story wait first what's antinatalism yes sure so antinatalism is the belief that um it is in some way bad or wrong to give birth (laughs) right and um a follow-up question are these overpopulation people are they like eugenicists so i think so just antinatalism is an umbrella term for anyone who has a belief that is wrong or whatever to give birth but um so david benatar specifically goes for a kind of it's just pure moral ethics mm. it's um existing causes pain yes and therefore by giving birth to someone you've caused someone probably a child or a baby to experience pain <laughs> a lifetime and of therefore, pain. a lifetime well, what's the most painful thing you could imagine existing so and then imagine doing that to a child. <laughs> am, am I supposed to not be being convinced by this? Um, oh yeah, I'm fully in. I, it's, it's, one of, it's one of my. Um, it's probably the most controversial view I hold. Is probably because antinatalism is so obviously true, and yet the only way collectively people that have heard the idea can respond to it is just <laughs> silly. <laughs> because it's like, well, how do you? So let me just take it one step further. Okay. Right? So that's just 
an ethicist's view of it, but now you put mm. a political component in. You know, well, look at the state of the world. Look at what we know about global warming and the fact that's not going to be curtailed. Mm-hmm. Look at the fact that we know we're going to go into another economic crash and the likelihood your child will die with poorer living standards than you were able to acquire in your lifetime in a globe that is, is dying. Why would you bring a baby into that environment? Is that not abusive? Yeah, oh, I'm in. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I'm, because, it, like, it, climate aside, capitalism, you're going to bring someone into a life of, like, debt, mm. alienation, depression, yeah. anxiety, feeling self-loathing I... at contributing to all those things because they're part of that system, like, feelings of, like, no self-worth because you're not keeping up with the achievements that society's told you to get. There is absolutely no chance even if I did the best job I did, if I raised a child now, it would have mental illness. Yeah, 100%. So, but also, I'm, I, I would have to do that knowing that that child is going to be mentally ill. Mm. Uh, due to the context that I put it in. That you brought it in. I can't give it else. a safe, loving environment because it has to exist in this country. <laughs> Yeah, I've seen. I, I, there was. I don't know if I'm seeing. I've seen like one aspect of this antinatalism debate because I do remember there being a wave of articles when it was like, you know, the like millennials have ruined this. Mm-hmm. Millennials are now not having kids, and it, but it was written from a like a boomer angle yeah. of no one's buying our houses when we want to downsize. Yeah. Um, like, where are my grandkids? My child is thirty-four, but I have no grandkids. And it's just because, like, everyone, you know, we all know, we, loads of people have the view you've just articulated. Yeah. And also, it's just really materially difficult to have kids, right? Because if you want to have, if you want to have a kid, you'd be like, I want to have a kid in a stable, um, like a home that I own and maybe some sort of stable job. And then you're, you're reluctant to bring a child into a situation. Because, you know, even, even bringing a kid into that situation is challenging, right? Well, I don't. I don't. Th- I think there is a decline uh, in childbirth rates in certain demographics, but I yeah. don't think it's explicitly for conscious antenatalist reasons. I think. Oh no, I don't think. That. I think there's a, a like a female liberation element to my role as having to pump out kids needs to be questioned. There's a lot of people therefore want to be vocally. I'm not going to have children. I'm a, I'm a woman. I'm going to write about that. Well, on the flip side, you could say. You know, if if you if if you were being if you would take be taking this antenatal argument and saying like it's morally bad to have kids, mm-hmm. you're just as much interfering in women's bodily autonomy because you're saying you shouldn't have kids. That's it's morally wrong. Yeah, yeah. So that's the same. It's actually the same thing, right? Because uh, you're one of you're, you're trying you're making a moral judgment about. Yeah, if you're going to make a moral judgment about having children, then it obviously <laughs> skews towards me moralizing patriarchal towards women. Um, but only to protect children. <laughs> <laughs> Some of the children are women. Yeah, yeah. Listen, I'm not, uh, listen. I know women are tangentially involved in childbirth, but I'm only really thinking <laughs> about, about little kids. Um, I. But also, I think I, that as well that that, that it, people know that materially they can't do it, but but that they're thinking in terms of I'd like to have a child, but I can't afford it. Okay. Because I think we're still programmed that a child is like. We get a house and we get a car and we get a child. Like it's, 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 it's the steps. You complete the steps. Yeah. yeah. 
I would be worried from a purely like stupid standpoint of like raising like a little dickhead, like a dick. Like you've got no control of whether your child is a total douchebag. Like they they like hate you. They're a like libertarian logic bro, and they they're angry because you, you you haven't got them an Xbox Six. Well, and I, they scream at you for pizza. I knew someone at uni who turned into a massive. There was a libertarian society that got formed and founded while I was at university, mm. and someone who ended up being quite senior in it was someone like I knew or was friends with who just slowly fell into this hole. Yeah. And they would say like, I remember once he got drunk and said, look, if you've got the money to do it, you should be able to bribe judges. Whoa, wow. galaxy brain. Wow, wow. And I once um, heard that someone said in one of their meetings, which like someone stormed now off and told me, this is, hor- mm. this is horrific, but someone said, um, you know, the half-life of radioactive materials and what that does, what your life expectancy is when mm. you're exposed to it mm. is like capped at like 35 to, four, to full 40. And you know, there are areas of extreme poverty overseas where people don't hit that age naturally. So why couldn't we put radioactive waste in those areas? Oh my God. Yeah. But then, so this guy, who now I think works as a parliamentary researcher for the Conservative Party, um, of course he does. Of course he does. That's his natural <laughs> habitat. Yeah, yeah. Um, he's, his parents were like died in the wool old school socialists. And he brought up like their absolute shock mm. and, and dismay mm. that he's become this. Because having a child's just rolling a dice completely. Yeah, you've got virtually fuck all control over it. You have a, you have a percentage of the pie of influence. Mm. But then the other influence is you just look out at the world and you go, if you were to give me a random part of British culture and then you put that into a child's head, that's almost <laughs> always going to be child abuse. <laughs> yeah. And I don't even mean like the bad ends. I mean like if, when I grew up, I was able to turn the TV and see Little Britain and I think... That does you some damage, right? People shouldn't have run in and put in their hands over my eyes. Yeah. Yeah. It's like in Poltergeist where they see like the child communing with the static in the telly. It's like, don't, don't do it. Even just BBC News. Yeah. Or, yeah, just the background radiation of British culture. I mean, just school. Mm. Just everything about... All the stuff, you know, the stuff you get from school of like success is, is good grades and... And then after that, success is a good job, and then success is a house, and then success is kids, and all these like goals are just put on you, and then you're like, it's very hard to get past going like, oh, I've, I've fucked up, you know, like even, even with like comedy stuff, you're like, oh, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not gigging enough, I've not, this isn't, yeah. I'm not improving enough, I'm not, I'm not putting putting myself out there enough, and it's like, where's that come from? It's come from stuff that was. Put upon, put in your head by society of like you need to, you know, produce something and and be recognised for something, and that's how you're going to. I'm not saying you know like we should. I'm not making an argument you should quit comedy or whatever, but like these things, these values are like put upon us, and it's like almost inescapable, right? And those things make you depressed, and then and then they crush you. And the main thing I think of is if we think of our own lives 
and how much forces outside of our ability to control mm. have made our lives worse, but also just made us sad and tired and weak. And then imagine you did that to a baby. Imagine, <laughs> imagine you thought of all the pressures you're under and everything that you're aware of that makes you sad or insomniac. And you think that's bad enough doing it to, to me and I'm nearly 30. But listen, mate, baby. it means your nan will stop asking you when you're going to have, when you're going to settle down and have kids. Yeah. And that is, and then, and then what's the other argument people make? Yeah, I want someone to look after me when I'm old. Not that's if really you make selfish. a libertarian. And also, yeah, that's profoundly selfish and horrible. Like I get that when it was like we all, in an agrarian, <laughs> In the agrarian pre-industrial age, yes, you need that to maintain the economics of a shareholder farm owned by a family. <laughs> when you're saying that they need to go out and do a job that they hate so that when you're infirmed because we all grow naturally old, they need to then spend that money and time that they're now capable of giving to you so that you can not end up in a, a care home. Yeah, I, I mean, no one should have to die without any dignity but you can't produce someone who's then your servant for later there could be a, maybe an increased welfare state so that people don't have to end up in shocking conditions when they get old yeah we shouldn't be relying on your grandchildren well, just, or even just the moral argument of like i gave birth to you well hang on yeah not with my consent <laughs> <laughs> i didn't opt Yet another great argument for antinatalism is yeah. like you're, you're kind of putting a moral obligation onto. But I feel like really, you flip that way around, it's like, well, you need to stand on your own two feet. No, you brought me into existence. Mm -hmm. I never wanted it. And now you're saying I need to sell my labour to survive outside of here. <laughs> oh my God. It's awful. But I, th I, I, like, I get these arguments that like life is pain and therefore shouldn't be imposed on well, someone without their consent. how could you conceive of something more painful than life itself? Yeah, right. Imagine kicking a corpse. No one's bothered. <laughs> it's just meat. Yeah. I've moved my meat around. Well, you're welcome to do that. You're <laughs> within your right country. Yeah, if it was your meat. That's so much, but I was really worried it was going to go like, this girl's going to be an overpopulation, bro. Like in eugenics. I can see you probably could. They must be in this... If, I, I don't know if it's a movement, but they must be knocking around the overpopulation. The David Attenboroughs with his like giant so, house, so, jets all over the world, loads of kids. We have to control the population of the poor people and the brown people. Here in Earth, there are too many poor people. Is overpopulation a completely made-up issue? And it's always right. a, so, facade, a facade for eugenicists or... Classist population, pretty much. They is there any they, is there any good faith factors in there? So from the stuff I've read, there's we could probably the Earth currently could probably sustain like 15 million people using technology that currently exists. Mm -hmm. But obviously, capitalism distributes power and resources in a very inefficient way, so that that's less possible. So when you're arguing for overpopulation, it's like. Well, we need to lower the population in order to survive under in, in order to maintain like first world quote unquote living standards sure. because the consumption you know like the west england america we consume like 20 times more than someone in like 
Ethiopia or something. Yeah. Um, so it's you know consumption is the issue, not overpopulation, and and, and the way society structures the issue. And it all comes back to that Malthus guy. Which people call the Malthusian. Do you know about this? Yeah. So I think he's some like Church of England or political figure from the 1800s, and he was like, um, he wrote 1830s. I think he wrote something about population's problem, and he basically said. Food production doesn't go up as fast as population's going up, yeah, and there's yeah, too yeah. many poor people. And he also, like, it, it's all, it's the classic thing of it's all under this veneer of science and, like, mm-hmm. we're logic and reason. You can't, this is, look, maths. But he's coming from the principle of, like, poor people are poor because they're morally defective and mm-hmm. they're lazy. And then he was behind, like, a poor law reform, 1834, I think, and that, like, basically snatched away what minimal welfare that's where workhouses came from so they were like oh you can't just get money because you're like you can't find work you're going to have to go and wind this wheel for 10 hours Mm -hmm. and then we might give you some coins um because like pure it's a notion of like deserving undeserving poor blah 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 but then malthus was then a big inspiration on the eugenics guys and I think most of the people making those arguments are kind of like bad faith yeah, eugenicist sure. guys. But I think there's probably a load of like very earnest environmentalists well, who come from just, that angle today, I do I think. I've always thought like, yeah, I I, I see the obvious way in which um, genuine concerns about overpopulation are just a, a thin veneer to talk yeah. about maybe trying to remove elements of society that make you uncomfortable because you drive a BMW. Yeah, the poor people. Yeah, and the brown people. exactly, right? Surely you could conceive of an overpopulation concern that isn't that. Yeah, the earth is finite. Well, it, right? If you, just on a basic, like, green policy yeah. idea, is just our consumption's going highly up on as individuals, yeah. and also we're increasing how many individuals there are. Yeah. So that's compounding the... Oh, I can see. I, like, I personally... Of course, think, uh, there's no real, like... Aside from going, like, a down a China one-child policy, there's no... Got rid of that now. Well, good. Yeah, but yeah. there's no, like, uh, uh, there's no conceivable way of going, okay, well, we agree overpopulation's an issue. How do we make a fair policy out of that? There's, there's no doing that at all. No. But I think a cultural shift out of everyone feeling like you have a car and then you have a child. Mm. I mean, I, what I think is a general propagation of the, the premises... Of antinatalist ideas, that is the solution. What you just need is slightly antinatalist uh, band. So if you were, if... My, my family, but it's just the, the just one guy. <laughs> <laughs> with no one's look after yeah. him when he's old. The, In fact, the... just friends. Friends was great for that. <laughs> so what you're saying is, is like, if you no children, if you if you were an overpopulation person. You want to not be saying that stuff because that's going to associate with eugenicists and like Churchill or whoever. So if you, you want to rebrand as antinatalist and be like, listen, life is pain and more people will get on board. Well, mainly I think I just was an antinatalist and I didn't know the name of it. Like I had all those intuitions anyway. I think I am. Yeah. But then I think it fe- if you want to, um, oh, no. if you want to solve the problem of what a good faith overpopulation concern would be, you can just fit that in the antinatalism camp and, and remove anything that sounds like the rhetoric of Attenborough and Bauer. Mm. And so I think it needs to be more of a culture war thing. It can't be a policy thing because there's no conceivable ethical policy for getting people to not have kids, which won't skew down eugenics-style lines. Or like it is just the only way you can it's do It's the only eugenics. way you can possibly yeah. do it. Yeah, right. But if you just said culturally, 
ah, let's just not bother. Let's have, <laughs> let's have an Xbox and a PlayStation. Yeah. And, no, and then that room, we got study. Or you don't even need the room. You don't even need the room. Don't even need the room. That could be another house. Yeah. Yeah. Bit more food, bit more food. You can go out yeah. to eat. Uh, if you've already bought, bought a cot, you can, you can go in the cot now. You can go in it. That's yeah. yours. You yeah. can have all that milk powder. Mm. That's yours. <laughs> <laughs> Mandatory Redistribution Party was created and produced by Sean Morley and Jack Evans. Our main title theme was created by Ella Jean. Additional music was created by Jack Evans. As ever, I'm leaving you with a parting message of encouragement to help us trick the algorithms. Likes, clicks, positive reviews, kind words, shares, printing our RSS feed URL onto a massive banner, attaching it to a biplane and flying it into the sea. Anything and everything helps the podcast. But please eject yourself before you hit the sea. Our fans are few and we can't afford to lose you. Goodbye.